Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Tracy Wick, Managing Director at Tracy Wick & Associates. Tracy is an expert in organizational effectiveness. She works with business leaders to understand what talent they have, what talent they need, and how to use data to inform their decisions. Her work includes projects in talent management, leadership, learning and development, employee engagement, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and digital transformation. Tracy is a speaker and blogger covering topics related to strategy, culture, women's entrepreneurship, and disruptive business practices, among many other topics. She has also developed an executive coaching program to help advance women to senior ranks and achieve parity. In this conversation, we focus mainly on the topic of gender equality. We talk about the glass ceiling. We talk about the glass cliff, which is a new concept for a lot of people, uh, but it'll make sense when Tracy defines it. And most importantly, we talk about how we can all overcome our own natural tendencies and biases that are limiting opportunities for other people. There is a ton in here, whether you are a man or a woman of any race, color, creed, uh, I think there's some great stuff in here that can open your mind, help build some empathy, and really help us all connect and create more opportunities for everyone. With that said, I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here is Tracy Wick. And we are live with Tracy Wick. Tracy, welcome to the show. Or I will say welcome back to the show because we have already had this conversation once and unfortunately the audio quality uh, didn't quite hold up. And so we're going to have it again, which is good as you and I were just talking about before we hit record. There's a lot that has happened related to this topic in the world since we spoke. So I think this will be even a richer conversation, but welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I agree with you. I think, uh, I think it's a good good timing, actually even better with some of the more recent news stories coming out. So we're going to talk a lot about gender today and gender equality, inequality, glass ceiling, but especially the glass cliff, which I know is a topic that you are spending a lot of time on right now. And most people probably won't know what that means, but little it's a little teaser because we're going to get into that later. But First off, would just love to hear a little bit about your background and how you came to decide to be doing the work that you're doing. I am like most professional women, I would say, or at least most of the women that I associate with, who found themselves to be frequently one of the either the only woman in the room or frequently one of the few women in the room throughout my career. And there are some 
obviously there are some professions where that's not the case, but I think if you look at the numbers, particularly the higher you go in your career as you climb up uh, the ladder, whatever ladder that is, whether it's a private company or a public company or even not-for-profits, you find that that is the case. And there's water that you're swimming in that you get really good at swimming in, but it doesn't always feel as good to you. It's harder. You might have to take more strokes to get across the pool. And that is because there is a way that the business world, I think, thinks about gender, has assumptions, particularly about gender and leadership. And you find that the if you take a step back and think about the strokes you're taking, the water that you're swimming in, there is something that just doesn't feel quite as good. And that's how I literally came to it was to start to think about, is it me or is it the water I'm swimming in? You know, am I doing something wrong? Am I being misunderstood? Am I not giving the right opportunities? What, what is it? And then what I saw is that there's actually systemic issues at play. And the more you can be aware of those issues, and the more you talk about them, so I really appreciate, particularly with people like yourself, the opportunity to speak about them, the more opportunity there is to unpack some of that and do something different. Was there a moment that the light bulb went off? Because it's, you know, I've worked in some, we'll call them bad environments, but I mean, I've worked in some environments that were, were less than healthy. And when you're in them, you sort of realize that like, you don't feel great. But it's usually when you get out of them that you can then look back and say, oh, that was bad for these reasons or toxic for these reasons, or I was mistreated in these ways. But to be in your career and sort of recognize it as it's happening around you is something a little different. And so was there one aha moment for you or was there a, is there an origin story and how you suddenly stepped back and were able to become aware of what was going on around you? Yeah, I think the origin story for me really has to do with what I'd call the buffet of opportunities that happened or happened, did not happen for me, that happened to my male colleagues after events that took place that were out of our control. So I've worked for big companies. For example, I've worked for large corporations that were then sold to other large corporations. And I always had to pound the pavement and really create my own opportunity. So I'm, you know, I, I'm a relationship person. So I would stay in touch with people, and it just dawned on me, as part of these networking events, you know, they'd be talking about all their offers, multiple offers that had come to them, right? Headhunters calling them, as opposed to opportunities that I, yeah, yes, I, I had opportunities. It wasn't like I, I, I didn't, but they, it wasn't like my phone was ringing off the hook in the same way. And it, and it just had me get really curious, like, why? What was missing? You know, why, why was that? And then when I talked to other women, that was an experience that was definitely something that they had themselves, that they really had to think about the opportunities that were coming to them and create them. And the other thing which kind of led to the glass cliff, which we're going to get to and talk about that, was they weren't as... Like, I, I don't know if we were always, women are always the first choice for the, what we call the juicy opportunities. It was always more like the opportunities that were coming to me were more like turnaround situations or coming in, rebuilding a culture or something like that, as opposed to like 
you know, the top of the, of the, the top opportunities that some of my male colleagues were being offered. So I just thought that's really, I, I have actually better credentials than they do. Why is that? That's what really got me. You know, my competitive spirit was like, I have better credentials on paper. Why is this happening? Yeah. And, you know, I think it'd be good. I know we're going to get to the glass clip, but I do think it's good to talk about some equality or equity stuff at the beginning, as you were saying off air, like the two are somewhat related, but I think there's an element to this that is maybe I'll say unintentional, you know, there's, it's right now there's in all different social areas, there are a lot of different conversations being had and some are being had well and some are not, but it seems like the terms that we're using can shut some people down. And so I think it's worth exploring some of those for a little bit. You know, you you said that it's systemic. And I think that word makes people uncomfortable because it feels like like especially to the people who are in charge, like they've set up a system purposely to hurt some group. And th- you know, you can have people with great intent who have not, you know, who would love to give opportunity kind of shut down when they hear something like that. So w- when you say it's systemic, could you define that a little bit? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And this is the the challenge of these types of conversations is the language. And that's why I really think that the best thing that we can do is to talk about it and explore it in this way, because I have an expression, language creates your world. And so when you use language like systemic, you're right, you're creating a world where it seems like people are purposefully going out of their way to hurt other people. And and maybe that's true in some cases. I don't think it is for the most part. I think it's an unconscious or what we call a hidden bias about certain aspects of gender and leadership and certain qualities. And so I think if you look at qualities of male leadership versus female leadership. So if you look at what the research would say systemically, there's a way that people think about men handling leadership in more of a stability framework. So when things are going well, so this kind of unpacks my own personal experience that I noticed. And that because there are certain characteristics that are typically identified with women and their leadership styles, collaboration, consensus seeking, that when there's a situation where it might be collaboration might be a stronger leadership capability that would be needed for a particular role. There's like this hidden belief, this hidden bias that maybe a woman would be better at that than a man. Now, to your point, neither of those are really true necessarily, but there becomes sort of these almost like stereotypes of how we think about men and women. And stereotypes can become quite damaging because then you just are kind of, they're the, they become the shorthand for us making decisions. And so that's what I mean by systemic, that there's certain things that unless we start to call attention to them and unpack them in the way that you're doing very carefully here, I think that they can just be, that's just the way it is, or that's just how she is, or that's just how he is, when really neither are true. But unless you explore and get curious, you can just act out of these hidden bias. That's, and that's how I would define systemic. Yeah, thank you. You know, we are nothing if not biased machines, right? I mean, that's that's how we get through the world. And I think that's I think people are finally starting to accept that a little bit more that it's it doesn't have to be malicious to have a negative impact on somebody. And that just because it's not malicious doesn't mean that you shouldn't do something about it and try to to change what's going on 
as a result of that system. And so, you know, we talk about like status quo bias, you talk about familiarity bias, the biases between, you know, how men and women behave and the types of things that they might be interested in. The I I would guess most of the time these aren't things that are being thought about consciously. It's just, oh, well, it it's some sort of subconscious just feeling, arbitrary feeling that we have that we just, oh, well, we slot these people here and we slot those people there. And, you know, maybe somebody of exception stands out, you know, and then, you know, a woman becomes CEO, but she's more the exception than the rule. And I think that's where we have issues with this stuff. Completely. And I think status quo bias is probably one of my favorite distinctions. I'm so glad you brought it up because I think that we all are, no matter what, we have the bias of the status quo. You know, if you go into a Starbucks and you see, I did this on Friday and you see that they have new, I'm a big fan of cold brew and then the sweet cream, but I don't want it to be too, too much sugar. And, you know, so I'm like inquiring about all this new coconut cream, you know, one that I don't even know what they call it. Right. And I was like tempted to order because it sounded so good. And then my status quo bias was like, I'll just have my cold brew. Yeah. Because I knew it, right? It's like, God forbid you have a bad experience one time, you know, have to go back and reorder it. Right. And I think that that status quo, the pull of the status quo. So that's, that's what I mean by systemic as well. The pull of the status quo is really strong. And unless we're systemically like thinking about it at the top, and then thinking about the various aspects that could actually alter how that what that structure is, which is really why I'm talking to you and why I'm passionate about the work I'm doing, then it's going to continue just like me with Starbucks. I mean, you know, God forbid I should get a coconut cream that I don't like. I mean, like, yeah. yeah, yeah, I have to go order another another cup of coffee. I have to get back in the line again. And, you know, with COVID, that's not so easy. And, you know, another 20 minutes later, you know, it's just, and I'm a human being like anyone else. So I have compassion for for the status quo. Yeah. Do you have any stories or examples from your, either from your own life or that you've heard of where you have been in the room or, or have, have heard of decisions being made innocently enough, but that have had some pretty significant negative impacts? on women? Well, I think if you think, I'm going to answer it twofold. I'm going to get kind of like a macro what's going on right now with COVID. And then I'll give you some of my own experience. So there's been something like, and I haven't done my latest fact checking as to the actual numbers. It might be either higher or lower than what I'm going to report, but let's say 2 million women who have for whatever reason exited and it's very personal, exited the workforce or taken a step back. And so there's now a lot of attention on this issue that I'm describing, which is there's an additional burden. They call it the burden. Sometimes they call it the mom tax that women typically, or, you know, again, this is a bias, but typically women occupy because they have to be, they're, 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 they, they have more domestic responsibilities, whether that's signing permission slips or making lunches or making sure readmission forms for schools are filled out or doctor's appointments. Then they also have sometimes taking care of, you know, the sandwich generation, they're taking care of their parents now, particularly with COVID. And I think that the biggest issue is not addressing childcare issues and the additional responsibilities that women typically have to contend with. 
And all of a sudden, you know, because it can look really easy, like we're, you know, the whole thing, women can multitask. That's a myth. Okay. I mean, can anyone really multitask? The The answer is no. (laughs) The the neuroscientists would would beg to differ, but there's a, that's a hidden bias. Well, you guys are really good at this, aren't you, Tracy? And that's kind of where I was going with my statement. So the answer is to not really have benefits in thinking about women and not just women, but people who are in those situations, caring for children, caring for their parents and what happens when they're, when business isn't as usual. Right. So I don't think they're asking the questions, what has to be true? What do we have to provide for, for that circumstance? And then my story is directly that when I was talking about, I adopted, my daughter's adopted and coming back to work, you know, sharing with the executive team about just the increased burden of acclimating, you know, an adopted child and everything else I was doing and having to travel. And their response to me was literally what I just said. Yeah, but you're really good, Tracy. You make it look so easy. You make it so, it's just so, you know, so awesome how, how much you can handle. And I thought, if you only knew what my eight o'clock was like, (laughs) that I'm sitting there drooling on my couch, you know, binge watching some bad TV show that just takes my mind away, you know? So yeah. No, it's like that. Those two are connected, you know, my personal experience. And then also, you know, the lack of empathy, I guess, of my personal situation and that lack of empathy, how, again, if we talk about the systemic, how it systemically can impact benefits and opportunities and travel schedules and things like that, if you're not aware. Okay. Now it was kind of a joke and they meant it, I think is a compliment, but it didn't feel like a compliment. It just felt like an additional burden I was carrying. You know, there was no, no awareness of my situation. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, wow, you do this so well, but we hear you and we're going to give you this additional support. It was right. just a, Hey, but you're, you're great. So suck it up. <laughs> Basically. Yeah. Yes. Which yeah. I think that is a very common reaction to a lot of professional, not just professional, I'm speaking more because I am a professional woman, but that is, I think, a very common reaction a lot of women get. And if you talk amongst like my friends who are working moms, we laugh about, let's just meet, which is why I think some of those movies are so popular, bad moms or whatever they are. (laughs) You just get on a plane and you fly to Vegas and you don't care about like the permission slips or you know, the lunch boxes or the doctor's appointments or carpool. You're just like, dude, I'm at the pool, you know? <laughs> yeah. Somebody else's problem. Talk to your dad, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I had, I actually wrote about this on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago, but my wife got COVID and my two-year-old son and I did not. And so she isolated in our master bedroom for 16 days. And I was a single dad for 16 days and was still working. And so I was, and we, so we had no childcare support. So I was trying to balance getting as much work done as I could during nap times, like one or two calls while he was awake, but tried not to, and then would cram, you know, in the evenings and, you know, would get up early enough to try to get a shower in before he would wake up. I was making all his meals, was making all my wife's meals, delivering them to the door. And I only had to do that for two weeks. Right. So not a long period of time. The work that I do is incredibly flexible, right? I can work from home. I can push a lot of my meetings and I was burnt out at the end of 16 days and, you know, needed a day to just like sleep and, and catch up. And when you think about the number of women 
and single parents, men and women who are single parents. And then, and then the number of mothers who are also working, you know, and the fact that that's there every day and they don't get to go have a day and, and catch up, you know, or get back to what I got to get back to once my wife got healthy and was able to help out again. You know, definitely having that experience definitely builds a lot of empathy. And, and I mean, I could see firsthand how you would have a massive problem if women wind up taking on a disproportionate amount of the homework, which we know they do. And so, yeah, I think the number that I saw was either was three times, they do three times the amount of caregiving. There's different studies, but that, you know, whatever yeah. one you quote is definitely disproportional. Yeah. So one other bias or one other, maybe it's not a, it's not a bias. It's just a counter argument that I hear a lot of the time is, well, women don't want those jobs. And, you know, it's like, oh, well, you're, you know, these are sales jobs with high risk and women aren't taking those jobs or these are tech jobs or, or whatever. And you hear that like, oh, well, those just aren't jobs that women are as interested in. See, there's, there isn't a candidate pool. It's not that we're not hiring them. It's just that there are no candidates. What thoughts do you have around that comment? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny. I hear it all the time. I heard it last week from uh, someone, one of my clients, about a sales job, actually, (laughs) about women don't want this job. And I thought, "Mm, is that really true? Well, I think, first of all, I think that there's an unconscious bias about just that statement, I would take a step back and say, okay, is that really true? It might be somewhat true about a travel schedule, particularly if, if women have, you know, responsibilities that like, you know, a two-year-old or they're caring for somebody. But I mean, I traveled with a two-year-old. So, I mean, but even that, so I think the first step is like, challenge your assumptions. When you find those statements coming out of your mouth, whatever it is about something like that, just take a step back and say, is that really true? And then what's my evidence for that truth? Okay. If it's one head count, okay. Of a person that you gave a risk to, and it didn't work out a woman, that's not a significantly large enough sample size. Okay. Is what I would say. You need to really look at the evidence for that. And then part of the evidence comes back to the statement that I was just making, which is what's true about your culture, about women being able to succeed without fear. That's a big part of it. Or recognize without obligation. Or if, if they fail, can they fail forward to some other role? So I think part of it is what's your culture? And that's not just about women. That's about your culture in general. Are you creating a culture of engagement and performance or are you creating something else? So I think the the message is check your assumptions, look at the evidence, and the evidence really comes to, you know, what you're offering as an employee to an employee, whether it's a man or a woman. Thank you. So let's switch gears a little bit here. Okay. And let's say I'm on a board and I say, you know, we've we're going through a CEO search and we select a woman for the first time ever to be the CEO of our Fortune 500 company. Great. We, you know, there's, we shattered the glass ceiling. We don't have diversity or equity issues here. You know, we're, we're inclusive. We want this. What would your response to that be? Well, I would say congratulations. Okay. <laughs> and 
I think, again, a sample size of one, even if it's the top job with the CEO title, is not, it's just too small of a sample size to say you don't have equity issues. <laughs> so I would, I would say that. And then I, I would also look at the opportunity that you've placed the CEO on. And there was a Harvard Business Review article that talked about, about this issue around leadership and, and gender and about when women are considered for roles and when men are. And so I, I think it would be a really good kind of true, like to yourself, like looking at the opportunity, if it was something that was not necessarily a turnaround or precarious, like you had had several quarters or a year of really great financial results, and that it wasn't that you were looking for someone to come in and do a cleanup job, and then you thought of a woman. So I think it would be equal opportunity about you know, how the finances were going, men versus a woman, and then you decided we're going to give it to the woman, then maybe there's some, you know, that that's, I think that would be a really good thing to, and you could objectively do that. You could look at your past, what, private or public, big or small, you could look back at your last couple of years and say, are we really crushing it to use, you know, a very gender specific kind of way of thinking about it? And if so, can this woman continue that? Or am I looking at her to be more of a turnaround artist? I think that would be a really good question to ask yourself. Can you talk more about that and about how the the bias that goes into looking at genders for leadership roles depending on the situation that you're in? Right. So that is, spoiler alert, that is the classic definition of what I'm calling is the glass cliff. So may, maybe then if you could just define the glass cliff then and then we can get into this. Yeah. So the glass cliff is an extension of the glass ceiling. So this and the glass ceiling, the good news about the glass ceiling is no one, I, I literally can't name anyone in my, who I, and I, I mean, you know, in my business life who, or personal life, who thinks having women involved in key decisions, whether it's at, you know, a political campaign or running a company, women need to be in the room. I think the glass ceiling has become part of our vernacular and so much that there's a lot about congratulations you've you know shattered the glass ceiling but the glass cliff is you know an extension of that in that it was it was first coined back in 2005 by two professors management professors Ryan and Haslam and it builds on the idea of the glass ceiling which basically talks about that women are placed in positions of leadership in circumstances of general financial downturn and downturn in a company performance. So they can get to a particular, yes, they can definitely shatter that glass ceiling, but the problem is that they're placed in these precarious positions and then they're more likely to be ousted. Their decisions are challenged more by board members. And there's another study that was done, follow-on study after that, that actually proved that that was true. And given less time to turn things around than their male counterparts. And then after they've cleaned up the mess, so let's assume that they do, they're less likely to be hired in similar high-powered positions. When men fail, however, it, you know, the same is not true. They're, they're, they're not as much under scrutiny that in terms of the boards, uh, board of directors or shareholder advocates. And they actually have a longer runway, perhaps, and then they have more opportunities, you know, with equal opportunities after that, assuming it worked or didn't. So that's the classic definition of a glass cliff. I'm saying classic, but, you know, I use it all the time. But I, part of the reason I'm talking to you is that I think it's a well, 
the glass ceiling is very well known, but the glass cliff is not. So I really want to create what I'm calling the glass cliff awareness project, that it's not enough just to get the CEO job. There has to be the support and the circumstances. What's the situation that you find yourself in, in that corner office and how are you being supported? Yeah. It's not just, okay, great. We gave them the title. It's that we really are giving everybody similar opportunities and resources and that we're all, we really are all equal trying to get the job done here. Yes, exactly. Okay. So when a woman is up for a new role like this, is there something that she can do to get out ahead of the glass cliff? Yeah. I love that question. It's a, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because the answer is not to say yes. I mean, if you're presented with an opportunity, it's not to say, oh, I, you know, I don't, I don't want that. Okay. It's really, I think to go in with a, with a lens that's again, an awareness about this and do your due diligence about the financials. And then I think that the other part of it is the support and the resources that you're going to have when you do say yes. So that you have the same staff that, you know, the staff that you think you're going to need to clean it up if it is a true. So first of all, is it a true glass cliff situation? Is it precarious? I think knowing if it's precarious is a good thing. I mean, there's lots of people that take on men and women take on turnaround roles. In fact, a a CEO mentor of mine when I was younger in my career basically gave me that advice. He said, if you want to really be something, Tracy, you should take on roles that other people don't want and turn them around and become like a superstar. He said, look at me, I became the COO doing that, you know? And he's, and so that's really good advice, except make sure that one, is it precarious? And if it is precarious, what do you need to fix it? Is your firm really behind you? Are they giving you the staffing and the resources? And then what's the runway that you have be really clear and articulate about the runway and the metrics you're going to have to achieve it. And then I think the biggest thing you can do is is create an outside support, whether that's an executive coach or you can create your own board of directors or have conversations with people that, you know, can consult you about really understanding where you are against that runway and those metrics and not personalizing them. Because I think there's a a mistake that women make that they can outwork it when they really can't. If it's truly precarious and you don't have the resources, you may have to go. It doesn't mean you should have said yes to it. It just means that you can't outwork it. Like you're, you can't work hard enough to fix it in some cases. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, that sounds like really sound advice for anybody (laughs) on either on the job search side or on the hiring side, right? Like, I mean, it's, if you're going to get into a new situation in a leadership role, what's being asked of you? What resources do you have? What's your timeline? I mean, that I think that's great advice, man or woman, you know, black, brown, white, any color, yes. you know, whatever, to really own what you're stepping into. And then on the flip side, if you're bringing in a leader, whoever the leader is that you're hiring, to be very clear with that leader on the directives you're giving them on the resources they're going to get, on the expectations, the timelines, the metrics, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, obviously that doesn't happen, which is why we're talking about it here where women need to own it a little bit more. I guess I'll ask that as a question. Do you see men getting that clarity more or do you see them just being given the benefit of the doubt more in those situations? 
all the above. I think okay. it's both. I think men are oftentimes it's kind of, I think they do get that clarity. They expect it. And I think the biggest thing is the bias about the expectations. I think it's women. If you're asking for some of that clarity, I think sometimes what I hear, and I heard this a couple of weeks ago, you know, a statement like you're doing your gender proud Tracy by asking these questions. Like it's an exception if a woman asks those questions, like I'm showing, I'm demonstrating, you know, I'm being clear. Whereas a man, if, you know, we both ask the same questions, nobody's going to say you're doing your gender proud, O'Brien, because you're asking about resourcing and timelines. Like there's like some hidden bias about how people, women and men are perceived about what they ask. Okay. And so I think that you just, as a woman, you have to know, or a person of color, this is kind of, again, that water you're swimming in and it's okay to ask it. You should ask it to your point. It's just good advice. And you have to know that there's probably an additional hurdle that you're going to have to overcome. Not in all cases, I don't want to say, you know, but, but just, it's kind of goes with the territory, if that makes sense, that you're going to be seen as an exception versus the rule. Yeah. That that's an interesting thing that happens, right? You talk about language being important, like that happens a lot with any minority group, right? That they some that they become a representative of the whole group, right? When they move up, versus, you know, me, I'm a six foot one, brown hair, blue eyed white guy. You know, like I, nobody has ever accused me of being a representative of white men. You're not carrying that burden, right? No. Okay. No, right. but that happens all the time. You you do hear that all the time when it comes to other groups. And I shouldn't even say minority groups because was it there are 51% of women on the planet, so women are actually the majority. It just I yeah, I guess min- minority in that setting, right? So if it's a mostly male room, you hear those types of comments being made. Yes. You do. And and it's a, like I said, it's a double-edged sword because it doesn't mean you should say no. If they're making those comments, I don't think it's, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not a wilting wallflower. I'm not going to leave, you know, and, but you also have to find, okay, there is a burden there. And I think that the choice, you know, it's always in the background, whether you choose, I mean, first of all, it's ridiculous to think that I can speak for all women. That's ridiculous. It's, I mean, I'm not making my gender proud. I'm just doing what I think I should be doing, Right. So I think you have to be aware and have really strong coping mechanisms about not taking on more of that burden because it's a kind of a recipe for failure. You can just do you. You can just do your job, do it really well. And that's where I think having an outside perspective is really useful of somebody who has your best interest to heart and who can objectively look at your performance and say, yeah, you know, here's where the line is, I think, really clear. Here's where it's not so that you can get that perspective and then be responsible to keep coming back inside your company and asking for what you need. I think it's hard to get that, even if you have a sponsor internally, I think it's really hard to get that internally. So here's another common thing that, that you hear, which is that often women will be other women's worst critics or that women will hold other women back. Once, once one woman, you know, gets into a leadership position, she actually is harder on the women coming up behind her. I fully expect you to tell me that that is a bias and not true because you you also see, especially right now, a lot of a lot of 
communities coming together, whether it's women, whether it's African-Americans, you know, whether it's whatever group really bonding together and trying to help up, uplift the whole group. So what's, what's your take on that type of a bias? That one is always really, um, I found humorous, which some people, you know, the haters may come out of this podcast and say, you know, oh, it's not funny, but I, I find that one to be, um, just utterly ridiculous. Okay. (laughs) Not even biased. Like, I just think it's like, that's a bad joke. All right. I mean, in my personal experience, I've never encountered it. I can honestly say that I have never encountered that stereotype or whatever in my career. I've always had strong women. I call my posse of women, whether we're talking financial services or I, I, I haven't experienced, I, I really haven't experienced it. So do I think it exists? I think it probably does, but I think political intrigue exists between men and women too. And people, you know, I think, I think I, I just not, I think it's a bias. I'm going to come back to it, but I'm entertained by it because I think it's so absurd that it's almost like entertaining to me. Well, I think it comes back to your point of sample size. Yeah. Which is if the one woman leader was very insecure and had a big ego and was, you know, wouldn't listen to feedback and was mean to her subordinates, then, you know, that's, that's what you think female leaders are going to be like. Whereas if you have 10 male leaders and two or three of them are like that, you know, it's not representative of the whole group. Correct. So I just think to me, that's an example a really good example in the way you described it of that additional burden that women and people of color have when they're promoted to a situation of power, a position of power, regardless of the platform where they're, they're asked or they're, there's these projections, like they're speaking on behalf of everyone that looks like them or everyone who's their gender. And it's just really unfair because you don't, to your point, we don't expect that of you and we don't expect it of other men in positions of authority or leadership. Yeah. I think we talked about this last time, but I had an interesting reaction to, I forget, I'm going to blank on her name now, Elizabeth. Oh, she was, um, Elizabeth Warren. No, uh, bad blood. The book was about her. She was the CEO of a company that claimed they could do Thanos, Elizabeth, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so that makes me think about Thanos and the CEO who I'm blanking on her name. But I don't remember uh, her last name either. Yeah. But it was interesting because you know she got arrested and the whole thing got exposed as fraud. And to me, I was like, oh, okay, we're starting to hit a threshold where there are enough women in leadership positions yes. that we're getting to see that they're not all great leaders, which you could say would be bad, but I'm like, oh no, there's like, there's no way all women are going to be great. Just like there's no way all men are going to be great. And so we're actually starting to see, like we're hitting some threshold where we must be making at least some progress because we've had now a little bit of bad behavior from that group too. And I, I don't know, it was a weird reaction, but I was like, I think about Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Yep, yep. And, and he talks about there are only two races, those who would do good and those who would do bad, and you could find them in any group. And so I was like, oh, well, maybe we're making enough progress here that now we've had somebody who misbehaved. I, 
would, so it's actually funny that you should bring that up because there is literature now that's coming out about that with the glass cliff. So I'm talking about an awareness of the glass cliff and making people understand, you know, giving language to the phenomenon. And then there's the, what they call the shadow side, which is your point, which is to be careful of the glass cliff. Like, which is why I keep saying, I'm not saying, say no, I'm just simply saying, no, the platform you're functioning from and the context, because context is decisive. And the point of some of the literature coming out now is, I wouldn't say that we've made it, but what they're saying is their point is your point, which is their point is it's actually the parody conversation, right? Good leader. It's about good leader first, male or female, as opposed to woman leader, right? And Amy Schumer has a whole, you know, whether you're an Amy Schumer fan or not, she, she was talking about, she knows that she'll be true, like it'll be truly equal when they no longer refer to her as a woman comic or a female, you know, female comic, that she'll just be funny. And I think that's part of it, you know, which is as long as we keep using these gender ways of describing leadership as opposed to what you're describing, which is leadership, then I think we're not, we're not quite where we need to be. Yeah. Well, and that's true. I mean, take comic out and insert any title, right? I I actually read something about that recently too, which is great female athlete, great, great female leader, you know, great female fill in the blank. And it's like, well, they could just be a great athlete or they could just be a great leader. And I think it was actually, I think, uh, what's his name? Murray uh, with tennis player and Andy Murray was being interviewed one time and said something about, was asked a question about being the best male tennis player or being the best tennis player. And he said, no, best male tennis player. And they, the guy said, what? And he said, you, you meant to say best male tennis player because Serena Williams has far more records than I do. And they were like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Best male. And like the guy totally brushed it off, but it was interesting because you don't often hear best male athlete, right? And right. it's just the the men are the best athletes and then the women are the best female athletes. But I mean, it's just, it's interesting. goes back to how we use language and what bias does then that create in our heads? And then you see that play out. I don't know if you saw what's going on with the NCAA March Madness basketball tournament. With I heard the, about it this morning. Yeah. yeah. So the, the male weight room that they set up is like a state of the art, massive weight room. And the women's weight room is literally, I shouldn't be laughing, but it, I mean, it's laughable. It is, it was like a table and a big open space. And it had one thing with two 15 pound weights, two 10 pound weights and two five pound weights. That was the whole weight room for all of the female basketball players at March Madness. I mean, it was like, it was absurd, but you can see how those biases then translate into some terrible decision that should be glaringly obvious how bad it is. Yeah. And again, I may, I, I laughed at it too, because I, I heard the interview, then I went on social media and I was like, <laughs> and it was like all right. I, I think humor is another, you know, way of coping with some really dark situations. And I, and I have a sense of humor about most of this, which I appreciate that you do too. And it, it was laughable when I saw it. I was like, are you kidding me? And Let's make no mistake. Just because it's laughable doesn't mean oh, it's not terrible and need to be fixed. It's terrible. Yeah. It's terrible. But yeah. I think part of it is you can use humor as a mechanism 
which is what this the interview I heard was talking about how it's gotten so much attention because you look at the pictures and people are literally laughing about it. And now they're having dialogue, which is that's my that's my point. My point is about how humor can be a, a tool you could use to have the right conversations to make the better decisions. Not that I'm condoning it at all. I'm not or anything. No. It's like when somebody said, you know, you're really doing your gender proud, Tracy. I was like, wow, that's such an incredible, is it? Oh my God, the weight on my shoulders. And then they just started laughing. I said, yeah, it doesn't feel good, does it? You know, I mean, it was like, I made a joke of it and, yeah. and it got the message. And then they're like, well, well, uh, okay, okay, we get your point. And I was like, do you? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. But it's good to, I mean, it's good to call people on that stuff too. Cause it, I think oftentimes we can speak without really understanding what the impact of our words is. And so we do need to be called on it. I mean, I, I'll admit I made a comment to my wife last night in a little bit of frustration and she just like immediately stopped and was like, you're like, you can't say shit like that. And she was like, think about what you just said and how that, like how that comes off to me and, and what that means. Like, think about what that actually means. And I was like, Oh yeah, that was, uh, that's not what I meant. And I'm really sorry. And I, you know, and I had to apologize and, and backtrack and, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean it the way I said it, but it came off and was not a good thing to say, especially to somebody that I care so much about. And so it is good, but I was very appreciative that she was able to call me on it so that I don't do it again. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't become an issue. So I think just because you say something like that doesn't mean you're bad, but you should be called on it and you should take some time to reflect on it. Yeah. And that's a really great, I mean, that's again, if we're talking about helping people understand these issues and raising awareness, that's a great question. Think about what that means. Yeah. Okay. So I think when we're in conversation and the whole point of shorthand and, you know, bias is because we are moving fast and sometimes you need somebody to call you out and then you can say, yeah, let me think about what that means. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. You know, on both sides, men and women, but that's a really great tool. Yeah. Yeah. That is a good question. What does that mean? I was glad she said it last night, but, uh, yeah. And, you know, I was very embarrassed that I had said the thing that I, that I had said, do you have any other examples of the glass cliff that might make this real for people? Cause I, I think we've talked somewhat conceptually and I know, you know, I've done some reading and listening and I'm always open to different perspectives because I'm always interested what experience different people are having, but not everybody is as familiar with some of this stuff and specific examples really do help. Do you have any clear yep. examples on this? So, um, cause you asked me that the last time. So here's, here's a couple. So this is one that was shared with me in the last month. So a senior partner of an organization was in a meeting with a C-suite team. She was the only woman. So you asked me my origin story, the only woman in the room and senior leadership team of a fortune 500 company. She's a senior partner. There's maybe four or five of her team. And then, you know, the four or five of the, of the company. And they looked at her and said, could you take notes for this meeting? So the assumption was, even though she was equal in title to everyone around the table on her side, she was a woman. So it made sense. Would you take notes? Okay. And it put her in a very awkward position because what is she going to say with the CEO of a major corporation dude, I'm not going to do that. I mean, you could, I guess, you know, and so that's an example, right. Of an additional burden of carrying, you know, like a, like a hidden bias of like, 
Maybe she takes terrible notes. <laughs> if, you, yeah. if you asked me to take the notes, you would regret it. Okay. <laughs> but, and, you know, because I don't take great notes, you know, it was just, it was, but she was a woman. So that's one example. And another one was um, a woman that I work with in marketing who's a brilliant copy editor, but she's very expensive. Like she knows her stuff and she commands a premium for it. And we've been working together and she comes out and she was, we were meeting and she goes, yeah, I got to just tell you what happened in this meeting. You know, my client looked at me and said, you know, you're really great. You know, you're, you, what you do is fantastic, but you're really expensive. Would you mind if I hired somebody and you trained them? <laughs> and she just left it. She goes, they would never say that to a man. So like, it, it's like, again, this sort of, I've made it, I'm in the room, but I'm not really in the room on an equal footing. You know, it's like this burden or recognition. It would be great to have the recognition without further obligation. Do you know what I mean? Like an obligation train somebody behind me or no, I'm really good. I need you to pay my invoice. That's what, you know, so those are two examples of things that happened, you know, recently. I mean, we were talking a little bit before this too, about the Bumble example. Would you mind sharing that one as well? Yeah. So that's a great one. So I haven't read the whole story, but a friend of mine sent it to me this morning about the CEO of Bumble and how she's created a massive amount of wealth and success. And which um, for anybody who doesn't know that company went public, what, a month ago yeah. and she became, what was it the youngest female billionaire? Yeah. I'm looking now. I think she's the youngest a month after the IPO. I haven't read the whole article, so it's valued at more than 14 billion. Okay. And she has uh 582 million in revenue and a 26% profit margin. Okay. Yeah. And, and her whole thing was about creating better equality because she yeah. was, she worked for Tinder and realized that she was the only woman in the room and that her feedback was not being listened to and that women were not being treated fairly on the app by a lot of the men who were using the app. So she went out to empower women in dating and started Bumble and, you know, turned it into what it is now. Sorry. So Continue. No, I'm glad. I'm glad you are know that because I didn't. I mean, I knew parts of it. I didn't know the whole story. But so instead of talking about all of her success in terms of being, you know, able to create this, to your point, take a concept, create it, and really make it incredibly valuable, she's being asked a lot about against the the recognition, the the, the success she has, but. There's a lot more questions about what didn't work in her past, about the failures that she, and she's had failures. I mean, she admits them. I mean, she didn't leave under the greatest terms. I think she sued Tinder. So, you know, that happens. That happens men and women. You leave, there's not great things, but instead of them focusing more on all of the value that she's created and being the youngest billionaire and this incredible platform and what it's made possible for both women and men, she's being asked a lot more about the failures and she's thrown down about it. She's like, enough already. Like, I, I don't think it's fair that I have to just keep justifying my existence. You know, why can't we just talk about, I mean, she, she'll answer questions about it, but she just feels like it's a disproportionate amount coming at her about her failures. And I think that's true. It's certainly been true in interviews where I've been asked a lot more about things that didn't work versus things that did work than my male colleagues. So I think that's a classic sort of phenomenon of the glass cliff. You have to justify things that didn't work as well in your past career 
which if you're a risk taker, which she clearly is, you're going to have them. That's the whole point. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem like men and women are asked different questions in interviews, you know? Always. Yeah. And it, it goes back to maybe, maybe it comes from a biased place, but it seems like women are asked more about failure, more about the relationship, more about how they got through something really hard and like, good for you. You toughed it out versus a, a man talking more about achievement. And that's not to say that men don't talk about their failures and women don't talk about achievement. But I think you can see that, that more interviews of men are flavored more towards the, the achievement side and more interviews towards women tend to be more flavored towards, you know, how they overcame something. Exactly. And that is a classic example right there of how did you overcome something versus how did you create? And again, if we talk about language, create versus overcome creates an entirely different picture. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When it comes to these topics, what are you sick of talking about? I'm sick of talking about, it's a really great question. My, my, my answer is I'm not sick of talking about it because there's so much work to do. That's kind of my first answer. I'm, maybe I could just say that I'm sick of talking about the exceptions, like somehow we're the exception versus the norm. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Like maybe the way I'll talk about it is this way is I'm sick of talking about what doesn't work. Like there's so much evidence out there of the gap of what doesn't work. Like, you know, in terms of pay equity, in terms of women at the top, like all the leadership stats are just, you know, they're, they tell not a great story in many cases. And I'm sick of talking about what doesn't work. I want to talk about what did the CEO of Bumble do to create her company. I don't want to talk about what didn't work. Okay. I guess that's what I'm sick of. And the stats that we report on usually are all about the gap and the deficit and what doesn't work. So we end up being the exception versus the rule. And there's probably more stories out there of what works. We just don't talk about them because all we talk about is what doesn't work. You're making me very self-conscious about this interview now because I'm afraid that we spent too much time talking on what doesn't work and no, not talking no. about what does work, <laughs> uh, which if we did, I'm sorry, uh, no. but that, that's a good lesson going forward. No, it, we didn't because you, and I'll tell you why, because you're unpacking it in a way that is about exploring the truth about it as opposed to the, like women don't do well in high pressure sales roles. Okay. Let's talk about why that's true. Okay. You know, that happened a couple of weeks ago for me. And it's like, well, it's not true, really. I mean, let's look at, you know. So I just think that if you're talking about what doesn't work in the gap with a commitment to think about how we, you know, do things differently, that's very different than just kind of reporting on the facts like they're factually true. Did, does that make sense what I'm saying? I, I Yeah, I think you're also being nice to me. But I'm not, though. I would call you out if I thought <laughs> you were being. I know, but it is, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, but it, that is a good point though. And it is something that's, that'll be a takeaway for me is, you know, focus on solutions, not focus on the problem. And I, I try to do that a lot, but I think that's a good charge for any issue like this, where you're talking about some kind of an inequality, talk about what's working and how to do more of what's working, not how to avoid what's not working. Yeah. 
You know, there's a there's a podcast that I haven't really. I think I talked about this. I, I can't remember now if it was with you or someone else because I was. I've been talking about this a lot with this with this commitment in mind that Malcolm Gladwell produces. He's not the actual person, but I wanna. I think it's called Solvable. I, I I'll look and and but it's basically he talks about he takes on a topic like the one that I listened to was about homelessness. And, and instead of talking, it's exactly what, why I loved it is, is in, you know, homelessness is an issue. It's a big issue globally. And yet he talked about solutions. Like he gave two different points of view of different one. in I think Oklahoma and one, maybe in another state, maybe California of where they actually solve the problem. So his whole point is about how do you solve the problem and giving different ways of doing that. So I would really like more interviews of how have we solved different things and solutions and ways of helping people think about it so that they can see themselves and take that path as opposed to the, if you keep talking about the gap, then you're just kind of left with, you know, you're resigned sometimes about it as opposed to being in action. That's, that's why I prefer that, you know, solvable way of thinking about things. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. Well, I know that we're coming up on time here, so I want to be respectful. Um, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to share or any call to action or any solutions that you want people to keep in mind as they come out of this interview? I would just say that it's really important. I have my glass, I'm calling it the glass cliff awareness project, which is unfolding. I'm going to be doing my own research and then creating my own collaboration community, but it's not, you know, I can't, it's not scaled yet. It's in early stages. So what I would say that's really important as a call to action is, I'm going to laugh when I say it, but it it really is about looking outside. It's not about you. It's really asking for help, okay? And, And creating that outside support of experts who can really have you have a clear head about what it is that you're trying to achieve and then empower you to take the action. I think a mistake a lot of people make is they carry this burden, this additional sort of burden themselves. And I think it's too heavy to carry. So I would say if there's any one thing called the action, just know it's a really heavy load and get the support you need to carry it because we're not quite where we need to be. Maybe in my lifetime, we will be or my daughter's lifetime. She's 12, but right now we're not. So know that it's a heavier load and how can you, how can somebody else help you carry it? Yeah, I love that. And and I will say, if anybody it has made it this far, but is still kind of on the fence of whether these are real issues, just ask the women in your lives if they've ex- if they've experienced any of this stuff. Just say, "Hey, I you know I was listening to this thing, and you know, have you ever experienced any of these inequality issues, or have you ever experienced this glass cliff?" And I think you'd be surprised at how many women would come back. I, I read a really great post on LinkedIn following the tragedy over in the UK where the woman was abducted by a police officer and, and murdered. And this person who posted, it was a former MMA fighter, green beret. His name's Tim Kennedy, very like captain America, very masculine guy, but he wrote this whole rant about how women have to deal with all of these stresses because of the men around them and and how vulnerable they've always felt. And I was just reading it and I was like, man, anybody who like, it it was hard for me to believe that anybody can't see that, but I realized how many women I've been around who have shared their story. Yes. And I think for any of the social stuff that's going on, there's a lot of reaction that's like, well, 
I don't believe that or oh, whatever. And it's like, well, stop before you come up with your assessment, reach out to as many people as you can in those communities and just say, Hey, I've heard this. Have you experienced it? You know, can you share what your experience has been? And, you know, you should be able to get whether it's common or, or not. And, you know, hopefully that changes your thinking. Yes. That's a really great, I mean, just think, have you ever been asked if you're a man, have, when's the last time somebody asked you to take notes in a meeting? <laughs> yeah. or, you know, that's a simple one, but I think, I think it's, if you ask women, that's a great question. They will tell you their own stories. Even if they have to take a step back and think about something, they'll, it's right there, you know, because it happens. So it's a great, a great idea. Yeah. I mean, one of the, I had a gentleman on Greg Tall, who's a corporate instructor. He teaches a number of things, but he also teaches uh, DE&I. And he was sharing his own experience as a black man. And he shared how many times he's been in a hotel lobby and had somebody come up and try to hand them their bags. And, you know, he'll, he said that he shared one experience where he was standing on the curb and he and a friend of his were at opposite ends of the curb. The curb was full of people in the middle, all of whom were white. And a woman walked up to his friend, tried to give him the bags. He said, oh no, I'm, you know, I'm here for a conference. She walked past everybody else and then tried to hand the bags to Greg. And he was like, no, I'm here for a conference. And, you know, then the white bellhop came out and took her bags and, it was, you know, I'm sure she didn't mean anything by it, but it's, you know, you realize the biases that are out there. And, you know, I think the better we all get at just being open to the fact that we all have these biases and then trying to see how we, even with all these biases, still treat people equally and give people opportunity. And that's how we all get better. So. Exactly. I mean, that's all you can really do because, and I think it starts with conversations and what I'm trying to model, which I think you're modeling, which is why, you know, I agreed to do this and would do it again. Hopefully this, this take is the right one, but <laughs> I really think you, you know, it starts with a conversation. It starts with you and it starts with a conversation and it's only through, I know that can be really scary today where it seems like you can't talk about these things, but it, there's no other way. We're human beings. There's the, the only way we can start to unpack these hidden biases. That's a great example. I mean, a terrible example. I feel terrible about that story, but the only way we can unpack it and change a person's perception is by pointing it out in, an, in a way that can be heard so that maybe the next time if she's in that situation, she doesn't assume, you know, something just like if I'm in a meeting and I'm the only woman, it's not assumed I'm the one to take the notes. So I think we have to have these conversations or else we're just going to keep perpetuating these stereotypes, these myths, and nothing's going to change. Tracy, I appreciate you being so kind and generous as to do this twice. I'm sorry again for the audio issues that we had the first time, but I, I think this is an important topic. It's been a lot of fun to dive into. It's been eye-opening for me to learn about it and then continue to learn about it here and uh, wish you the best of luck on your uh, Glass Cliff project. Thank you so much. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.